my my friend Dan uh, is my college roommate is on my TED talk and uh, and and he had this dramatically rapid decline uh, and I didn't say in the TED talk but what happened was he was a nurse practitioner up in Alaska and he got sat he was uh, given this wonderful little house to stay in but nobody told him don't drink the water. Oh. And the lead content of the water was over a hundred times the allowable limit. And and he had a decline the first summer that he went there. Nobody, he didn't really think anything of it. He just thought he was grumpy, midlife crisis, all that, all the stories we tell ourselves. You know, when we have a brain dysfunction, we have to make sense of it. So we make up stories and we often don't get evaluation because ah, it's not so bad. I'm just a little angry. I'm pissed off at my wife. I don't, I don't like don't like this, blah, 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 blah. the politics, whatever. And so <clears throat> but then he went back the next summer and it was immediately after that. And while he was in Alaska, he had a profound decline. Blood tests and uh, urine tests showed very high lead. <clears throat> it was really the process of um, IV chelation with EDTA, uh, micronutrient support, uh, and then all the dietary interventions and everything that was done. And he had a really a complete turnaround. He came back to his entire functional state. And then this when is he really sl- a classic functional yeah. medicine approach, looking at toxicity, looking at nutrients, looking at structure, looking at yeah, all of these pieces and putting infections, putting them all back together. And it, and it was when he quit chelation that he started to have a, a relapse. Oh, no. uh, so we're, listen, I don't believe, you know, again, people are, oh, you think lead causes. No, I think lead in the context of other things we don't yet know. Mm-hmm. You know, let's not be so overly simplistic, you know, but results are all the only thing that matter. Period. End of story. Results are what matter. So you judge effectiveness not before results occur. So what we did was remarkably effective for a period of time. And still, he's had minimal progression compared to other individuals with frontal temporal dementia. Uh, so uh, anyway, it's just been, and it's, it's and again, it's, uh, I'm working with his neurologist at Mayo Clinic. You know, we are continuing to ask the questions about what else could be going on under the hood. Um, interestingly enough, uh, oxytocin, uh, has been amazingly helpful for him. Intranasal? Uh, How are you doing it? Intranasal oxytocin. Uh, and, and it was kind of funny because I'd, I'd found in the literature, oh, this was help. This is potentially helpful for frontotemporal dementia. So we prescribed it in an off-label manner uh, in, and this, you know, with appropriate, you know, with appropriate informed consent, et cetera. And, um, and he had, uh, he, he went from, well, it was really anti-asshole spray is what it was. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of psychologic and neurologic irritability that he had, which was just not him. He was one of the most amazing, lovely, loving human beings you could possibly ever know. And and to see him afflicted with something where he blurts out um, terrible things. Uh, and then and then it doesn't take very long. And he realizes, oh, that was a really bad thing to say. And his insight kicks in and he feels terrible about it and you know so his form of dementia is different than other everybody has everybody with dementia is an individual case of dementia just like with cancer right mm-hmm. cancer we start out with our own genome so everybody's cancer is unique and we everybody starts out with a different brain we have a different connectome 
we have different uh, injuries. Head injury probably paid a part in him. He had a couple of major head injuries, and we saw uh, indications of that on quantitative EEG, which could have very well correlated with that. Um, he did a mate and neurofeedback also helped him tremendously from a mood uh, regulatory standpoint early in this process. Um, yeah. So it's uh and, and he, he is super fine with me sharing everything and anything about him. I know, love it. I heard he's going to be so. a guest on your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think we're going to have a, uh, you know, a dementia with Dan episodes. So. <laughs> <That's great>. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like he would be a really phenomenal person for someone to learn from, right? Because he's, he's actually been through it. You and I, you know, you can't really be on this end and have cognitive decline, right? Like it's, there's so much changing in the literature and in, in the best practices it, it takes a lot to stay up on all this stuff and, to, and then to put it together for people. And so we don't have, we don't have the benefit of that firsthand experience. And I'm sure relating to other people who are going through it is such an important part of it, right? Like feeling like you're not alone and that there's hope. I, I'd imagine he has a ton of value to bring to this conversation. Hello, hello. Welcome back, Neurohacker community, to episode number 66 of our podcast. Today, Dr. David Hasse joins us to share a systems medicine approach to treating dementia. For details on this episode, go to neurohacker.com podcast. You'll get a summary of our show, a full transcript, and can join in the conversation in the comments. So let's jump right in. Here's Heather and David. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I have Dr. David Hasse here with me today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Heather, it's great to be with you. So it sounds like you and I kind of got into this dementia world for similar reasons. I am, I was drawn to dementia and all and autism, excuse me, Alzheimer's and autism, because I thought, okay, if I can help with the hardest things where nobody else can help, then what can I not do, right? Then I can help anybody who walks in the door. And that's the goal, right? To be a good doctor, as you were talking about, if you could help everyone who walked in the door. Um, you'd be doing you're at least you're a glutton for punishment. Yeah, right. <laughs> you'd at least be making an impact, and so, and so. Then, as I worked more with Alzheimer's, I think you and I came to the same conclusion. It's like, wow, you have these people at the height of their wisdom and experience, and God knows that the world needs some wisdom and experience these days to come up with solutions to the problems that we have on the planet, right? So, if if we could help to support these these humans, these humans who are, are advancing in their age, to be more engaged in their communities and their families and their work and their passions, then maybe we would have, you know, we would get back a little of what we were losing with this increase in the rates of Alzheimer's as people age. So it sounds like you had a very similar process. Can you tell me what happened that got you interested into, in, in dementias? Well, you know, I think that, like I, like I said, I... Um... I really have, I did not want to work in dementia. I mean, I really didn't want to. You know, I love neuroperformance, man. You know, I'm all about making databases of peak performers and neurohacking. And I've been been working in the, you know, in a very small group of people to, you know, kind of take that to the next level. And, and, and there's a lot of fun because when you have high performers that are performing even higher, they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> high fives in the office. Yeah, this is good, fun. But, you know, but when you really ask what's meaningful, and just like you said there, it, it's, I would think the highest end, the high, the thing I want the most of in the world is more wisdom. Uh, it is, it is the most important resource and that we need as we move forward as, as a society and as a world. And wisdom is held in elders. 
And, you know, an elder is an old person with wisdom. And so we need to have these individuals' brains last as long as their bodies. And, and we have to figure out this systems problem that is causing the unbraining. And that's really what dementia is. It's unbraining. And there's not a single cause. It's a multifactorial process that occurs over the course of time. And my big challenge, right? You know, my so anyway, my big challenge is that people don't get here soon enough, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, there's a lot that we can do for brain cells that are limping along, but you know, n nobody's raising the dead, right? right. So, so when our brain cells have died, we have a decrease in our uh, <clears throat> our capacity. We have a decrease in our reserve functioning, our organ reserve of our brain. So the sooner that we can intervene, the better. And uh, I just became passionate that we, all these same tools that we're using in autism or in peak performance, it's the same organ, it's the same body. You know, we should be applying these tools to our elders. Uh, and, and that's been, you know, that's been a over decade long project. So my pet peeve, when individuals start having cognitive decline, they have not checked out because, and this is our bias, this is an awful problem that happens, is that our world, we since we don't have anything yet that we believe helps the immediate set point we go to is that okay it's time to give up and the faster i give up the better off everything's going to be and that's horse hockey i mean that is absolutely wrong but but we get this mindset and so anything that is not giving up we actually can develop some hostility towards. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, wait a second, this is how I believe the world is, and you're telling me it could be different. Either, you know, anyway, all kinds of emotions come up in the people with dementia as well, as you've noticed, right? Yeah, well, I mean, and it, not it, only for the, the person suffering with dementia, but for their family members, everyone who's invested, not just, not financially even, but just emotionally, right, to... to to have right. hope that they could potentially do better and then to be let down. You know, no, nobody is interested in getting into that kind of cycle. And so there's just a huge amount of investment it takes um, emotionally to be on this wild ride with someone you love. Right. So I'm going to go back to a little bit. You asked me how we bring people in, but we, we go through a bunch of testing, but then it, we, we, it creates a, a report and a plan of action because the plan of action is not needs to be multifactorial as well. It, it needs to address sleep and activity and diet and um, nutritional supplementation and um, mind-body and it may also include things like um, photostimulation, electrical stimulation, um, uh, plasma exchange. Uh, the there's a there's a whole peptide therapy. You know, we're going to come to you know some IRBs going around exosome therapies. I mean, so there's the the number. I feel like of a things... kid in a candy store right now. You just said like <laughs> all of my favorite things. Um, <laughs> I basically want to go through each one of them and pick your brain for like hours on each of them. Um, well, because the, the point of this and the point is, how can I how can I express the good doctor in the way that I am? And, and I have an ability to be very curious. Um, I wrote a book called Curiosity Heals the Human. Mm -hmm. And and, and it, because I really believe that that's the fundamental thing. If we start asking different questions, that's what gives us the potential for different answers. And, and I love days when I am proven wrong. 
I love days when somebody changes my mind with better data. I am mm-hmm. thankful for that. I, I have tried to really nurture that in my uh, in my professional development because it's dangerous being an expert. When you're an expert, you start tying your ego into uh, what you have said. And and so we say, oh, this is the way. This is the program. And and I think there's a lot of caution in that. We like to follow experts. We like to follow people that we give our authority over to. You know what but, I've been so impressed by with you is just your caution and how in in over promising, right? In, in that you are very careful to say that although there's hope for dementia, it doesn't mean that we're batting 100, right? Like we're not getting this right every single time. And we don't want to to suggest that that's the case, but are there some people where, yes, it reverses? That That's true, right? There's truth, and then there's there a are. degree of humility to it as well, which I really appreciate in your presentation. Well, I don't think you can be a physician and have your eyes open and not be humble. I've never understood that because the human condition is so complex. And uh, and even if we're the most head topologist in the world in our field, we still know nothing compared to reality. And uh, so anyway. But that comes we, with a sense of reverence, right? We, that, do, that... we can do so much. That shouldn't yeah. stop us from doing what we can. But it shouldn't also, uh, just because it hasn't been done before is not a valid reason for do it, for not doing it now, right? Right, right, it's, right. And especially we are failing in dementia. And if we continue to fail, Everybody is harmed. Mm-hmm. This is the, everybody, uh, the society, uh, every, it, nobody wins. If nothing changes, it literally will bankrupt the country. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I want to go back to the fun list. Um, but young, <laughs> young blood transfusions or plasmapheresis is something that you have uh, more experience and wisdom than probably anyone on the planet around. So you got into this early on. Um, Tell me the story of how you got into it. And then where are we right now? What do we know about the potential of this therapy? Sure. So, and and let me be really clear. I never, I really never say young blood. I mean, that's a, that's a great marketing term, but I think some unscrupulous folks, um, I think that that is a hype cycle that, you know, you know, some people like being known and they want to, I, well, Actually, words are important, is, so let's let's name it. So, so, so I, I think youth, young plasma is is really what we're talking about here. Oh, so let's go let's go back. It's kind of a funny story how I got into this. So I have a privilege and honor of taking care of some very high resource individuals that seek me out to uh, either pursue peak performance or very challenging medical needs because I really like problems that I have no limit to how deep I can dig into them. And so that is uh, that is so joyful for me to work with people who both have the the financial resources and also the the mental predilection to want to dive deep uh, and into the things we learn. And then I teach about those. I teach other doctors. We teach other. We, nothing of this should be secrets. You know, as soon as I learn something, I try to blather it out as fast I can because. Um, and then prove me wrong or prove me right or add into the story. That's that's where that's what moves 
health that's what moves our health science forward in this field of systems medicine because we have to go di- we have to go deep with few people and really understand that before we're going to be able to go broad with many people so that's so anyway that's the, so i had one of these individuals a c level employee of a major tech firm out there in silicon valley and you know everybody has used a product he's developed in probably most days and anyway he um he is just a remarkable individual and i'm having my intake evaluation with him and he says uh, i said so what do you want to accomplish as we work together and he said well i want to live forever and and you know I, listen, no big I'm deal a, doc no pressure <laughs> i'm a farm boy okay i grew up on a dairy farm i'm very rooted in the natural processes of life and death and I kind of have an agricultural view of health. You know, we should grow it, et cetera. So hearing this, I was like, okay, I have a a choice here. I can immediately blow off what he just said as being hyperbole, or I could actually take him seriously because who he is, I'm going to take him seriously and see what I can learn from it. Mm -hmm. So for a period of time, I just decided to suspend my reality, suspend any belief that I had that this wasn't possible. And I dug deeply, and this was about four years ago, dug deeply into everything dealing with anti-aging, regeneration, you know, longevity, et cetera. And, And there's so much horse hockey out there in this field and a lot of great promise and a lot of great ideas. Uh, uh, the Stens Institute that, um, uh, is uh, run by Aubrey de Grey, I think mm-hmm. has really been an amazing, Aubrey's a fascinating fellow. I hope you have, have you had him on yet? If not, you should. Yeah, yeah I because, know he's uh, on the list. He's very close uh, to the top of the list. Because he's conceptualized, he's thought mm-hmm. about of longevity medicine. What are the principles that we're going to have to overcome? And one of the things that he really, that shocked me is that I had never thought of aging. Aging is really the excess of damage over repair. Mm-hmm. So every day that you have more damage than repair, you have aged. And so the the how do I repair? How do we start regeneration? Well, I need you need to go to stem cells. So stem cells are what do our stem cells and satellite cells and there's a whole host of um, various um, potency cells that do the job of repairing. So how do we turn those on in the tissue where they are? Because you can give some concentrated stem cells in a knee or a joint, and you can help regeneration an area. We're working towards growing new organs. We're doing stuff. But if we're really going to help somebody live towards forever, um, healthfully, we need to remarkably increase repair uh, and and cause the stem cells body-wide to act younger and be more functional and uh and so then it comes the next part of the story so um i've in my research i came across parabiosis and parabiosis is some fascinating studies done in berkeley harvard mit stanford um and they took mice that are clones of each other and uh they took a, a young mouse and an old mouse and then they sewed them together side by side yeah i know it's kind of sad but why did they do this what because made them do they, this to begin with? Well, this actually is a very long history because they were trying to understand could young blood change the, you know, could young affect old? Mm-hmm. And a remarkable thing when they were attached is that in about a week, the old mouse started to turn young. Neuro, so n- new skin cells start, uh, skin starts to have increased health, hair 
growth patterns change, liver function, uh, renal function, muscle strength, uh, bones, uh, you started getting more osteoblastic activity and new neurogenesis. And not just neurogenesis, but we've now found out more uh, synaptogenesis, which is the making of new synapses elsewhere in the brain, which really excites me more than even the new neurogenesis. So, so how do we, how do we induce this, uh, effect? So that old mouse started to turn young and the young mouse was actually poisoned by the old, their stem cells body wide were stunted. And after about a month, they were recovered, separate the mice. Young mouse lives to its normal expected lifespan. Uh, and in some studies, and there's not many of them because this is not the point of the study, is that old mouse lived closer to the lifespan of the young mouse. So, so there's, and the data on this is very sparse. So I don't want to make any, again, <laughs> you know, in this field, people want to extrapolate out wildly. I'm just interested in healthier stem cells. That's the most important. And if we do that, we actually will have effect on longevity, I believe. But that all has to be proven. Now, um, so anyway, that's how I got into it. I went, oh my gosh. So we literally, youth, this is the important message that healthy plasma induces old stem cells to act younger. And maybe it's not the plasma itself, but the signals within the plasma sure but it's but but it's all it's okay it's everything here's the fun part about this well what is it so the study was done to extract plasma from old rodents and then they injected that young plasma or actually pulled plasma out of young rodents and injected into old rodents and voila the same thing happened so they were able to show that it was in the plasma now what in the plasma mm-hmm. and this here the systems medicine versus reductionism really comes into play. Are you going to, you know, and and uh, uh, what has occurred in the science part of this is it's kind of split off a couple of ways. You know, lots of interests, big pharmaceutical companies have gotten involved and said, okay, well, how do we investigate this more fully? Uh, what are the small molecules that could be developed out of this that would, you know, here's an individual drug, here's an individual peptide, a protein, here is a cocktail of a modified plasma, here's, and it's good, we need to be investigating all these different angles, and we need to put them up against scientific rigor uh, and figure them out. But, um, so there's many different ways to try to hack and figure out what this is. But it the sounds bottom like it's line, kind of analogous to like herbs, right? If, are you getting just that active component or do you get the whole herb and you get the very different experience when you distill down and reduce it to the active component yeah. versus using the whole herb? And so kind of same thing with the plasma. Yeah, because the plasma is a system. Mm-hmm. It is a system. And that system is now interacting with an entire, the young plasma is a system that interacts with the old system. And so ideally, you'd say, well, what would happen? How could we put young plasma into an old person and see what effects that would have? Now, there's a lot of barriers to getting that done. So I'm, I'm a trained apheresis specialist. So that's actually one of the things we do in apheresis is we, you can you do that process of removing old plasma and then replacing it with something else. And that's something else that we have the most data on right now is not young plasma, but it's albumin. And so the AMBAR study. So let's talk about let's talk about the AMBAR study. Okay, um, the AMBAR study is a uh, was sponsored by the drug company Griffles, and they took a uh, enrolled you know uh, over four uh, four hundred patients. Uh, I think it was uh, four hundred and uh, ninety some. 
Uh, and and they did a put individuals into a placebo control in three different arms. And they decide, okay, let's study this. Let's remove the old plasma and let's replace it with albumin, which is just the main protein that's in the blood uh, of of other humans. And let's put little albumin in in your globulin, and let's see what happens. And then we'll do plasma exchanges. So in you know, like a person um, my size, I'd have about four, four and a half liters of plasma running through my body. So a full plasma exchange would be removing that four to four and a half liters, and then replacing it with albumin. And then uh, so you've essentially done an oil change for the brain. Is kind of approach they're going through here, right? And they did uh, six individual plasma exchanges once a week for six weeks. And then they did uh, uh, once a, a tiny plasma exchange. And a lot of people in the field went, why'd they do that? But they did a tiny plasma exchange once a month then for 12 months. So over a 14-month period, they got about 18 of these, uh, some type of an exchange of some type, placebo-controlled, double-blind. Uh, this was multinational, done in the United States, done in Spain. Over 14 academic centers involved, great scientists, great clinicians, good, good controls, good ethical protocols. They did a good job with this. But what they haven't done is published. <laughs> oh, no. No, they have. So they have presented at three major uh, organizations, kind of um, dribbling out a little bit of information at each one of these national meetings, um, but but we don't have the published article yet. Uh, but but because this has been under so much scrutiny in the apheresis community, we feel like we've you know has been done well. And you'd ask, well, why haven't they published this? This is like. Okay, let me tell you the results. That's when you're going to really wonder why they published it. So the results are pretty remarkable. So in, if individuals had moderate dementia, what they found as a group is that the individuals who went through this plasma exchange had a 60% decrease in the rate of progression over 14 months. 60% decrease. This is, this is the largest apheresis study ever done when measured by total apheresis uh, procedures completed. This is not a small study. It's a small study because apheresis is hard to do. It's expensive. It's time consuming. There's not many of us trained to do it. Um, and so anyway, it's but 60% decrease in the rate of progression. And this is without any lifestyle change. This is without any testing. This is without even probably, they didn't probably do a great job of absolutely being certain that these were clear Alzheimer's patients because when they did their CSF uh, amyloid, uh, there's about 25% of individuals who had no detectable CSF, um, a beta 42, uh, and no detectable phosphorylated tau. Um, but anyway, so, but, so that was remarkable. But, but they were doing mind, some kind of testing because they could tell that there was a 60% reduction. So in... much, there's so much more here. Oh, okay. Yeah. They did before and after FDG PET scans, oh, wow. which measured the metabolism of the brain. So the more glucose metabolism you have on this FDG PET scan, the more neurons are active at that time consuming glucose. And so we typically see is this lowering and lowering and lowering of metabolism over the course of the time in the brain. And um, what was found is that the uh, the individuals who went apheresis had a substantially lessened decline in their whole brain metabolism over these 
14 months. So they've had so metabolic improvement, number one. Number two, uh, in the moderate dementia, they saw a, a cognitive improvement, f functional improvements, and behavioral improvements. And then they did CSF, um, A-beta-42, and, and phosphorylated tau, and they were able to show that those markers of decline stabilized in the individuals undergoing this apheresis. Now, and in mild Alzheimer's, and the problem is here, again, it's a small study, so we don't have a large group. But in the, um, so the powering, we're still waiting for the study, you know, we're trying, ah, ah. <laughs> get it out there. I, I want to dig in all the little detail of it. But the, um, but the, the in mild dementia, there was an actual improvement noted. Wow. So, and that was published, that was uh, presented at one of the, uh, at one of the meetings in California in said... December. This is a, no other intervention. This was the single intervention. So they really restricted the variant. Remember, it's it's not a single intervention. It was 14, or excuse me, it was 18 separate exchanges. But type so of I'm, intervention. So no lifestyle change, no increase in exercise, no change in diet, nothing else. So can you imagine the potential if you coupled that? So exactly. So but I said this. I, it's important for everybody to recognize that the health is in the plasma. The health is in it's the plasma is informing the set the stem cells body wide in what's going on. Well, what do lifestyle interventions impact? Right? So your plasma is the interface in between the outside world and the inside world. Pretty much everything that comes in from your gut is getting to all of your organs through your plasma. Everything you put on your skin is getting to your organs through your plasma. Everything you breathe in. Some of it goes directly to the brain, but most of it goes through the plasma. So when we, this is a fascinating surrogate and actually a confirmation to so much of what we do that the, the plasma is healthy. And you know, if we can, lifestyle interventions have tremendous impact. And I think it's as we can track stem cell activity um, with lifestyle interventions and doing maybe tissue-based transcriptomics. And there's a host of ways that we can look at this to gather group data and then understand, you know, what are the particular findings that go on? I think it's quite remarkable. But we have we have folks coming in from uh, all over the place doing sure. uh, with us. So, so but I mentioned – oh, yeah, go ahead. So I mentioned to you that I recently bought a facility because if your loved one has dementia and you can no longer care for them yourself and you want to get help from a home, there right. is not a single residential care facility for the elderly in the United States that doesn't serve cake and ice cream after every meal. Except for breakfast, but breakfast is pancakes and waffles, right, with whipped cream. And they, the owners... Nodding the brain right, right there. Exactly. Huh? It really wow. is. And then not only that, but in terms of, of movement, the caregivers and managers, they don't want people to get out of bed because they're a fall risk and they don't want the falls on the record, right? So they're limited right. in movement. They're getting, they're being served basically poison for the brain. And so there wasn't, as people were asking me, where do I send my loved one? I had nowhere to turn. There was no resource. So I, I had the genius idea of, well, well, why don't I do it? Um, it can't be that hard, right? So I would love to hear from your perspective, if you were in a residential facility, if you were in a residential care facility, what would be 
sort of the cornerstones? What would your day look like? From, not from a medical perspective, but from a residential perspective. Like, how would you plan out your day for the best brain health? Because lifestyle, we can all agree, right? Lifestyle is a huge factor in, in what's going to happen, right? If this is how we're going to send signals to the plasma without having to do apheresis, what yeah, do we do? Yeah, absolutely. You bet. That's a great question. You know, um, uh, yeah, we've been in functional medicine. We've been thinking and talking about this for a long time. Um, you know, Catherine Wilner, Dr. David Perlmutter, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. David Jones. You know, really pioneer. These are the pioneers in this field. Uh, Dr. Jones is who taught Dr. Bredesen, and so you know, we, we we've been kind of around that. You know, this is systems-based medicine is kind of an approach, and mm-hmm. I'm thankful to Dr. Bredesen for you know writing his book and creating you know creating an awareness around that. Um, um, and the, and I will also add that the clinical practice is often not as simple as a uh, as a as a protocol. You know, trying to bring things like this to the masses is, which is the most complex of the complex, uh, is is very challenging. And so, working with a clinician, working with a clinician who really, you know, understands the the nuances and can apply it to that individual's life is is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, anyway, I just wanted to say that number one because it's 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 challenging work. So I applaud you and I love the idea of a facility because that gives such uh, you want to have an environmental intervention. If you can change the environment so that the the changes are easier, um, especially in a time when there's decreased cognitive function, you know, it's just cruel in many ways to be asking people who are at the height of their cognitive decline to be making these massive lifestyle changes. Oh it's my just, gosh, yeah, to change your diet, change how you shop, but d- uh, remember to take all these supplements and these ones are away from food and this one is with food. And yeah, to ask someone to do that, it's next to impossible. They have to have a it, caregiver that is very dedicated. Absolutely, and and really, the health it is it's caregiver dependent, mm-hmm. and and the joy that that caregiver then does get, however, from seeing these things change and and working with their loved one can be remarkable. It's, mm-hmm. That's been really surprising for me as well, just how how much change happens in the caregiver's life, uh, also towards their their own prevention of dementia, which is right. the next layer we need to get to. Right, okay. we we really have to ever for every dementia patient that's out. There, uh, there are very likely offspring that mm-hmm. have a very strong message to get started now, please. Right. Get the ripple uh, effect of this. This, mm-hmm. this, this is going to be better off. So, um, you know, I, I think the one thing, it, 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 the thing that jumps in my forefront of my mind is actually community, mm-hmm. uh, because community is a profound influencer. We become the five people we hang around the most, and if we're hanging around positive, active individuals if we're hanging around young people and and i think this is one of the really um i always get a kick out of like george burns you 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 see pictures of george burns and you know living to 100 he he was always surrounded by young people Mm -hmm. all right you know betty white betty white always has young people around her right and so I think that it's important to you know, nurture youth, you know, to have youthful contact and um, and to have meaning. I think one of the other things that are important is that 
that there's meaningful things to do. How can you contribute? I mean, I think, you know, shoot, a daycare facility combined with this could be an amazing, you know, synergistic opportunity. That's a Scandinavian model, right? Yeah. And thank you. This is very validating because that's one of the questions on our our application is how do you see yourself contributing to the community? I think that that you have to come with an attitude that I'm not just going to show up and receive, but I'm going to be actively engaged. Right, right. Yeah, it ends. And so, um, you know, the diet stuff, lots of other people talk about diet, etc. But I think that it's so important from a lifestyle standpoint um, is is making it easy mm-hmm. yes, and, and making it joyful so that this is not some kind of, a, you know, this is something you get to do. And oh, my gosh, this is more fun than I could have imagined. Mm-hmm. And this is the best time of my life. That's what I would be shooting for. I mean, I mean, you know, to have, a, you know, it's a party all the time. Yes. And, you know, and, and that, you know, fun music, bright colors, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. and, and also, I think the the fun music would be the music from the era of wherever those people are. I mean, I think that we're profoundly affected by the music of our youth, um, you know, from our late teens to mid twenties is kind of always our music. Mm-hmm. You know, think what I grew up when I did. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not plagued with horrible seventies music. <laughs> <laughs> So what if you could do any study that you could think of, unlimited bandwidth in terms of intellectual capacity or finances, what study would you design and what question would it be that you wanted to answer? Oh, oh my gosh, I have chills. I have chills. So I would absolutely, I would want to study the, the full transcriptomic, proteomic and metabolomic effects of a therapeutic plasma exchange using the plasma from highly qualified, um, healthy donors um, in individuals with frailty. Mm-hmm. And I say frailty rather than Alzheimer's because a frailty is the dementia of the body. Uh, you know, their dementia and frailty go hand in hand, and they are really kind of diseases of aging. Um, I'm actually working on building a, a new um, age chip. So this is going to be a complex laboratory assessment. We're going to be looking at several thousand markers to quantify age, um, uh, you know, looking at anyway, – I'm not I'm, I can't talk about it just yet, but you know, can I uh, ask you a couple of yes or no questions? No, you can't. Oh, but, dang it. but but it, it's going to it's going to combine at a much lower price point several different several different components, including DNA methylation, including okay. tel- you know, t- telomeres. Those were my questions. Including clocks. Including, you know, because everybody has their measurement, right? If you're a protein mm-hmm. scientist, oh, here are these nine proteins. And Tony Rice Carey published a great article, you know, showing that there's nine proteins that vary over the lifespan, and you can track these nine and get an age print with uh, with proteins. You know, uh, Steve Horvath has done wonderful things with DNA methylation. Um, there's so many ways that we can do this, but it needs to be done in a way that's cost effective enough to do it frequently mm-hmm. uh and 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 I, it needs to involve thymic evaluation so anyway my study my study would really be how do we quantify what changes occur when we change the milieu 
and we change the system as a whole because that's going to give us we're going to see which genes are activated so the transcriptomic uh, patterning is going to help us understand um, when are we aging earlier because when do we need to know what is uniquely what is your personal kryptonite Mm-hmm. Is a is a favorite questions. You know, how can we figure out what your personal kryptonite is? Because, you know, a toxin is not a toxin is not a toxin. And I think sometimes we give way too much credit to toxins, and then others we give way too little. It but it depends upon that person, and and so once we can now track what what is actually represent, representing re, the reversal of aging, which I think we will see. When we are able to do these studies, but but we need uh, highly validated uh, sources of plasma. We need um, it's super great funding. We need we need to have centers, you know, multi-center trial. You know, I mean, we want that's the data that we ultimately want to have. But in the meantime, let me say this: in the meantime, I think it's unethical for us to do nothing. Mm-hmm. I think it is unethical for us when we have basic science, animal science, early human clinical data, I think we're bordering on being unethical by having inaction. And in our current medical community is rightfully cautious, rightfully cautious. I mean, doctors are, doctors and medicine are responsible for the death of many people and hubris uh, with, you know, thinking we have the answer and giving Mm -hmm. well-intentioned ideas uh, have harmed people over the course of time. And I think, and this is why my profession, uh, and I'm very proud of them for that way, we're we're a conservative profession. There's a, there's a good thing to being conservative. Uh, But, but there's also, there's the dark side. So, um, you know, we have to check our egos at the door. We need to make sure that we are doing everything possible to assure safety whenever kind of any intervention is done. Um, and, um, and we need to make sure that informed consent is robust uh, and is, you know, th- and if we do those things, we should be innovative. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, um, and, and then we should report on our findings and help move our science uh, and the health of humanity forward. But it takes money. It takes money. And I've got several studies that need funding. So yeah. I'm always, I'm always open for funding sources. <laughs> uh, and I try to run cheap studies because right. I, I, I want the data, right? Yeah. We need, need that. Um, <laughs> you got me going, my, I mean, my brain explodes at that point in time because I have so many questions I and, love it. and do science better. You know, here's the NIH just, uh, if you rec, just recently it was reported that only about a third of the trials that go on uh, clinicaltrials.org have results. Yeah, so many drug companies, many individuals that you know put up for and say, "Oh, we're doing research," mm-hmm. are not reporting results out. What a waste. And, and findings are super important. Right. You know, if if something didn't prove out, we need to know. Yeah. And, and that is, um, you know, our failures are are more important data pieces many times than our successes mm-hmm. because then you don't have somebody else, you know, going over that. You, but, but it's unacceptable to just say, oh, you know, we don't have science, so we can't do that. No, we have science. You, oh, my God, we have so much science. But, you know, this is, this is why the practice, the, the best science always happens in the actual practice of medicine. This is where systems medicine has to be 
evaluated. It is in actual practice. It is in uh, so. And it's where you pra- can't another- ignore systems medicine, right? Like you cannot avoid it in the real world. You just can't avoid systems. Right. You can avoid and si- ignore systems medicine. But you <laughs> well, you can try, but it, that's what got us where we are, right? Come for you. Yes, we will. <laughs> you cannot. <laughs> so, David, I know that you are a very busy man. I have one more little question about um, the plasma transfusions. So, one of the obvious risks that comes up is what I think of as okay, all of my patients in their 60s and 70s who had needed a blood transfusion in the 70s and now have hep C. So are there yes. things, these are blood products, are there potentially things in the plasma that we don't know to look for yet that may become a risk, especially if we're expecting these people to live for a long time? Is it possible that there's a risk decades down the road that we're just not aware of? Absolutely, there's a risk. Absolutely. And I, th- and I think to whitewash that is inappropriate for everybody concerned. You know, <clears throat> the people I'm in, interested in in these types of treatments for are those individuals who, you know, have a short health span left, mm-hmm. right? Without intervention, you know, the likelihood of them having a life that they would want to live is pretty li- pretty low. So this takes us kind of full circle back to your conversation around risk versus benefit and cost. Exactly. And I do, I, you know, you know, this got all hyped up. I mean, what was the, the show Silicon Valley and you got your blood boy, you know, hook up to your <laughs> blood boy, get some young blood. I mean, that's the hype cycle, you know, and that's, that's what people, you know, you want to, you want to uh, sensationalize things so that they become, you know, something that that people want to click on, you know, so damn much is made for clickbait. But you know, you didn't medicine consult actually... on that episode, huh? You no, didn't consult no, on I that episode. <laughs> I, I absolutely did not. No, and 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 uh, and for the record, Peter Thiel has even come on board and said, no, he doesn't participate in this. So let's just be, let's, you know, a lot of lot of uh, urban legends have have been made by some unscrupulous actors in mm-hmm. the field. And it's probably why this is the first time. You know, anybody's ever heard me talk about this, right? I don't, I don't, I, I think that we need to get things sorted out in the practice of medicine and I and in science, et cetera. So anyway, I backed up. So let me go back to risk. So, and, and there's even more risks. So there are risks for something called trolley. So if you're getting uh, plasma from another person's body put in you, this trolley is transfusion-related acute lung injury. And that that has been triggered by HLA and HNA antibodies. Well, guess what? We can screen for those now. We didn't know about this several years ago. And those antibodies can be screened for to make the um, plasma, uh, uh, you know, to make the the. Uh, plasma supply safer and that should be being done for everybody but it's not a standard of our current blood banks um because uh, yeah we can do a whole nother session on blood banks and on process of acquisition of plasma uh but there is there's one company called new plasma in um uh in texas and they are an american association uh accredited blood bank and uh they're um and, and again, they they have, they do a testing way above uh, above and beyond uh, the testing of most other blood banks. Um, you know things that when you're thinking about you, how can you get the healthiest plasma, and and I'm not even thinking for, golly, we let's just not go so far to think that this is plasma exchanges for making youth or for treating disease yet. Just how do we have the safest plasma? Is what we should be talking right, about. Right, right, for anybody who needed it. Everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there are some additional tests that can be done to search for um, 
you know, likely reactive molecules, this HLA and HNA antibodies, one of them. Other things we can do is, um, is, uh, is is pool that plasma you know so you 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 get harvest from one individual have one individual donate and then um have them wait a month before the next donation and then don't release that first unit until they come back and are tested again as being clean then what you've done is you have dealt with that um period of latency that does occur in several infections um i think that's that's an important process to do i think that there are and then in decreasing the number of donors one would get plasma from because you can get sensitized. Um, I, I think there are a ton of uh, very important considerations to go here. Uh, but but doing this, I think, can improve the uh, plasma supply for everybody, you know, looking at our standards. Uh, but that will increase the cost of, of getting donations. Right. And, Right now, most plasma donations, you know, people that donate plasma will do it like twice a week sometimes. And I'm concerned for them getting depleted. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, the United States is the uh, number one exporter of plasma in the world. Uh, it actually accounts for over 1% of our GDP. How's oh that? Gosh, I had no idea. Never, never, never thought that <laughs> we were. And so people make it like, oh, my gosh, you know. You know, people that don't understand that this is already big business. Mm -hmm. Um it's also maybe because it's big business it has some friction i i wouldn't be surprised by that um but again i believe that um the people in the healthcare field be they pharmaceuticals be they insurance companies be they hospitals doctors nurses everybody in concern i think they're really good people they're the best people on the earth and they're they're making statements and doing things for the right reasons you know to move the health of patients and people forward and um, and by listening again, checking your ego at the door, but but um, but not being timid either. You okay, know? David. One more, the most important question: When can yeah. I come hang out with you for a week and just absorb <laughs> what's in your brain? <laughs> well, we'll talk off camera How about that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Is that? I hope that's but, a yes. Yeah, yeah. That would be fun. That oh, be you heard it, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. David Hassey. If you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. If you're looking for any or all of that, go to neurohacker.com to learn more. And as our gift to you, we're offering an additional 15% off your first order using the code PODCAST66. If you have any questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com podcast and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Make sure to go leave us a five-star review and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll see you next time.